Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center, L3C. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan Loverich, a legal assistant with SATC and one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm here today with two guests from Lyft Chicago, Saul Anderson, their executive director, and Sarah Spunt, their program director. Saul, Sarah, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So we definitely want to talk about Lyft Chicago, what it's doing here in our community, and how it's helping families. But I want to give our listeners a sense of who you are and sort of where you came from. So let's start with you, Saul. Can you give me a little background about you and what brought you here to Chicago? Yeah. um, So I am originally from Grand Rapids, Michigan, just across the lake. Um, And uh, I've been in Chicago for going on 13 years now. Um, You know, so most of my kind of career, adult life, I've spent um, spent working here for communities in Chicago. Um, I went to Michigan State University, did my undergraduate studies there, um, kind of in like a, a degree program that was like sociology and public policy, sort of the nexus of those two things. There's a, a program at Michigan State called James Madison College. It's like a residential public policy college there. And then I did my MBA at Michigan State as well, always with an eye towards doing nonprofit management. Um, and so when I left graduate school, uh, you know, when my, my family came from the South originally, my, my grandmother just didn't want to live in Chicago, and, um, but my, my grandfather's brother moved here. I had a ton of family here and spent a lot of time here growing up, going, you know, family reunions and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I wanted to, you know, do work that I was passionate about in a city where I felt like that work could be meaningful, that work could, you know, make changes that could possibly have ripple effects across the whole country. And I think that there's no better city to do that uh, than Chicago. Um, you know, it's an amazing city with so many strengths, but also a lot of challenges. And I think, you know, if we can crack through things here, we can do it almost anywhere else in the U.S. So um, I've been proud to, to, to have been working to serve the community for, like I said, for almost 13 years now um, and, and many more to go. Yeah, well, I know we definitely appreciate it. My best friend is actually lives in Grand Rapids now. He went to um, Calvin, and he's tried to convince me that Grand Rapids is like a small Chicago, <laughs> and I just don't see it, yeah. but yeah. great city. <laughs> you know, it's a funny story. This is so, Grand Rapids, I uh, actually learned this while I was doing my MBA, that the population of Grand Rapids pretty much mirrors the population of the United States um, okay. demographically, and so when I was in high school, we used to get all of these products, like kind of like when before Pizza Hut came out with the personal pan pizzas, they like sold them in our lunchroom. Crystal Pepsi, I'm, I'm older than most of the people in the room. I don't <laughs> know if people remember Crystal Pepsi, but we had Crystal Pepsi in our school before it went to market. So I went to like a small kind of college prep high school and they would like test these safe products to be sure, but we got all these products before they would go to like the full market because oh, wow. of, because of, uh, because of Grand Rapids is sort of like demographic representation. And so uh, I didn't really know that until I was an adult. And it was just funny because I would like have some, some, some drink in school. There was like some weird energy drink <laughs> that we had one time. And then six months later, I was in the store and I saw it on the shelf. And I was like, what the heck? I didn't know this was like a new thing. So, yeah, it's, it's, got, its, it's got its strengths. Um, and, and, you know, yeah. it's a cool city. I, I certainly wouldn't call it a smaller Chicago. But it's also getting better and there's a lot more things coming to Grand Rapids these days than there were when I was a kid. It's kind of growing and booming in ways that I I didn't even really see growing up. So it's a good place. Yeah. And Sarah, I know you have closer Chicago roots, but uh, but tell us about uh, your 
Chicago upbringing and what brought you back? Yeah, I grew up in the western suburbs. I grew up in Naperville, a rather large suburb of the city, and I ended up going to the University of Kentucky for undergrad and studied secondary social studies education. I was really passionate about um, education and access to education, um, high quality education for everyone. It was based on an experience I had um, while I was in high school. Um, Growing up in Naperville, I grew up in a very um, affluent neighborhood, uh, affluent high school that had lots of opportunities and courses, and we did a um, school exchange program with a city on the south side, and I just saw the differences in just the physical building, the differences in the textbooks and everything. Um, we had everything in the world at our high school and just very scarce resources at this um, high school that we visited, and it was really empowering for me to see that um, and just seeing the inequalities. Um, in our education system, so that got me really passionate about the education gap and educational policy. And so after studying secondary social studies education, I went into AmeriCorps and did some school-based programming. Um, AmeriCorps, um, for those who don't know it, is a a domestic service organization, and it focuses on building capacity in nonprofits that focus on anti-poverty work. And so that's also where my passion for poverty alleviation came into play. Um, came back to Chicago and got my master's in social work at Loyola and have been working in the city and some suburbs ever since. Yeah. So it's obvious that both of you, from an early point in your education at least, had this idea that this isn't just about me. There, There's other people, there are other communities, there are other groups of people who aren't getting the same sort of education or who could get better education. And seeing that or kind of experiencing that around you, what would you say early in your education and then in, in your career, what was the passion that was, was lit there? What made you kind of go, oh, okay, this this could be something. Yeah. Um, so for me, it comes from a couple of places. The first sort of part of my story starts well before I was born. Um, so my dad is one of 14 kids. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> okay. I have one, and like thinking of 14 times what I have to do every day has me shaking. Um, but yeah, my, my grandparents were sharecroppers in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Very poor black family in the Jim Crow South. Um, with, with, with pretty much zero opportunity in front of them in, in, in you know, kind of if you would have just painted their story from there that's what you would have predicted Um, but my grandparents had other ideas they actually kind of saved up moved their family north uh, to Kalamazoo Michigan my dad was about five years old Um, and through a lot of hard work a lot of sacrifice a lot of you know pushing their kids they were able to send all 14 of them to college Um, and so you know that was really like the beginning of my story is this sacrifice that my grandparents made um, and really just the expectation that they put. And, and also just it helped me to recognize that, like, someone who, I mean, my grandparents didn't, I didn't exist when they decided to make the sacrifice, but they did it with me in mind. They did it with my son in mind and his future children in mind, right? And, and just taught me, you know, about the idea of doing something greater than yourself. Um, and, you know, my, my grandfather was a minister, my dad's a minister, um, so, you know, I grew up, you know, seeing that extended through their work and, you know, in, in many communities of color, uh, particularly in the black community, churches often serve as social services hubs. Um, you know, my mother ran our, uh, the food bank at our church and 
uh, when I was growing up and a lot of things like that. And so I saw my parents kind of continue that sacrifice. You know, my two brothers and I both, you know, all three of us, excuse me, went on to college and, you know, and, and two of us to graduate school and kind of with an, again, with an eye towards like continuing to move the family forward and do great things for our community. Um, and I also grew up in a, you know, a low kind of working class, low income working class neighborhood in Grand Rapids on the, on the southeast side. And, you know, I saw my neighbors, you know, scuffling, hustling to have enough money to be broke at the end of the week, you know, and, um, you know, I saw friends lose their lives at a young age. I saw friends go to jail at a young age. And I remember when I graduated from high school, a woman at my church, um, Mother Montgomery, said to me, uh, Saul, now that you, you know, you've got a chance to do something more, you have to help people like us. And, you know, I think about that moment all the time. I mean, that was a very important moment for me too, just kind of cementing what I always thought that I wanted to do. And, and it made me feel like, you know, it was more than just a passion. It was a duty, a responsibility um, that I had to my community, um, to people who lived in, live in environments like that, and for people who maybe didn't have someone make the leap for them like my grandparents made for me. Um, I, had to, I, I felt like I was, like I had to do something to create that opportunity for them. And so it kind of set my path in motion. Um, and I think it's just been the only thing I've ever really dreamed of doing other than brief, you know, beliefs that I might go to the NBA or something <laughs> like that, um, which went away pretty quickly because there aren't a ton of six four post players in the league. Um, shout uh, out to Charles Barkley. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> other than those dreams, all I ever wanted to do was was help my community or help communities like mine. Um, and I never really, never really considered anything else. Did you start with Lyft in its infancy or was this something that was around when you got into your career, started doing this? Yeah, so um, Lyft is a, uh, we're actually celebrating our 20th anniversary um, in, in just a few weeks in the middle of May. Um, I've been with Lyft for almost seven and a half years. So for a good portion of that, but not, not for the full story. But in some ways I did start with Lyft in its infancy in that you know, we've really had a, an interesting evolution as an organization. We started being founded by volunteers. Our, our co-founder who just stepped down as our CEO after leading the organization for 20 years was a college student when she started the organization. And we had sort of chapters all over the country where, we had, where she had friends and you know, some of her friends had friends and sort of chapters popped up around helping low-income community members in those communities. So we were you know, working in New Haven, Connecticut and you know, places like Durham, North Carolina or Baltimore, um, you know, um, Richmond, Virginia, these kind of places. And so when I came on, we had just started, we had just kind of completed the process of evolving into an organization that was focusing on the core metropolitan areas that we are working in now. So New York, Los Angeles, DC, and of course Chicago. So we were still a little bit in this kind of, I wouldn't say in the infancy, but if you think about it as a lifespan, we were kind of like maybe teenagers at yeah. the time, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and I've gotten to watch the organization grow into becoming an adult from that through that process. Um, so I've seen, I would say, a, a, good, a good amount of Lyft's growth and maturity as, as an organization. Sarah, can you give me an idea of what Lyft is for someone who doesn't know? I guess we should say first also, this is not the car ride-sharing company. <laughs> L-I-F-T. I may have been a little confused at first, uh, but this is L-I-F-T, Lyft yes, Chicago. Right. But if you could just give us an idea of what Lyft is and, and who it strives to, uh, to partner and help. Yeah, so 
Um, as Saul mentioned, Lyft is a national organization that focuses on poverty alleviation. Particularly, we focus on a two-generational approach where we help parents um, stabilize economically so they can help their children break the cycle of poverty. So our mission is to empower families to break the cycle of poverty, and that's something we do by partnering with parents um, to set their career, educational, and financial goals um, and help build some personal well-being and social connections together. Yeah, and it sounds like, Saul, that's something that your grandparents kind of, that's their, that was their mission, right. not you know, to break cycles, to, to kind of start a new cycle right. of success for not just your family, but then people that would be touched by your family. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, there's, in some ways our, our, our work is, is really innovative and really unique, but in some ways it's kind of common sense, right? That if you can create, you know, even little slivers of opportunity for kids through, you know, small sacrifices and small improvements that parents are able to make, it has a tremendous impact on their their lifelong outcomes. Um, you know, we know this just anecdotally, but also there are just there's just so many statistics to back it up. You know, if you help a parent improve their income by even as little as three thousand dollars while a child is younger than eight, that yields a seventeen percent increase in their lifelong earnings. You start thinking about working over a lifetime, that can be tens of thousands of dollars from this one time when their parent when a parent's income increases by just a, a really kind of small amount. Um, and so, you know, there's just so many other things that, we can, that you, we can prove and that we've researched and that we can see that show how much little bitty things do to improve the outcomes for children. And yeah, I think that was what my grandparents knew that being sharecroppers forever wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna give their kids any, any opportunity, wasn't gonna give them a chance to be anything more than they were in that very moment and that something needed to change. And, you know, it's a different era now where 60 years later, you can't really, you know, up and move to a new part of the country that might hold new hope. Like we are, you know, much more formed as a nation. And so, you know, we've got to create opportunities where people are. And, and, and that's, what we're, that's what we're doing at Lyft. Yeah. And so do you work mostly with parents or do you work with the children as well? We provide services directly to parents, and so we pair parents with an individualized coach that helps them develop a plan around those goals, um, like I mentioned in the career finances and education, and develop steps to reaching um, those goals as well. So everything we do is with the parents, um, but we do have opportunities to bring families together as well. We'll do family engagement events, back-to-school bashes, holiday parties, and different workshops we have an event coming up um, for our families called My First Piggy Bank. And so we're teaching um, parents on how to talk to their kids about um, budgeting and saving and start those conversations early and why it's an important conversation to have while kids are young. Yeah, and so when you're kind of educating parents about how to be better parents and you have coaches that come alongside them to do this. Who are these coaches? Where do you get the coaches from? And how do, are those partnerships kind of fostered? Mm -hmm. um, primarily, most of our coaches are volunteers. Um, most of them are masters of social work students completing their field placement um, for their graduate level education. And so they are with us throughout the duration of their academic period. And we have a robust training program for them at the beginning of their time with us and then continuous training throughout the year to support the parents. So parents meet with their coach about once a month. Okay. And one of the things I saw 
when I was looking at your organization was that they can do this virtually by probably what like phone or computer, but also in person. So you give them a lot of options as to how to get together and, and work together? Mm-hmm. Most of our parents meet face-to-face. They okay. prefer that human interaction and that human support, like all of us prefer to be face-to-face and have that human connection, I think, or um, most people prefer that human connection. I can't say all. Uh, but we wanted to be flexible to parent schedule. Obviously, having a young child puts a lot of pressure on time, and if your child is sick or if a car breaks down or it's snowing outside and you don't want to take the bus with your kid, we wanted to provide ways for parents to connect with us as well. So we offer um, phone meetings or um, FaceTime meetings with parents in order to connect uh, virtually if needed. Um, So that way the barriers to getting to their school or our office isn't something that prevents them from getting the support that they want um, and meeting with us. Just the, you know, the core kind of foundation of our work is the importance of true, deep, and honest relationships with all the people that we serve. We we want people who come to Lyft to feel like we're a part of their support network and not just an organization that they come to um, to work on, you know, certain things. We want people to feel like Lyft and their coach is someone that's in their corner and that has their back. And so... You know, whenever we can, we can, as Sarah said, you know, we want to do that, that in person, but the flexibility is so important, you know, as a parent myself, even, even with, you know, almost all the resources in the world available to me to be able to make things work for my schedule and and flexibility and having a car and being able to hop, like having the resources to hop on the train and take lifts and do all these different things, L-Y-F-T in that case, um, (laughs) you know, it's still really hard, you know, it's still really hard to get around. And so flexibility I think actually we use that not to replace or or supplement but not to replace the relationship but actually to enhance it right if we say you're not going to lose this opportunity to get the help that you need because your kid got sick like that's a big deal right you think about any relationship that you have and if you say you know a friend if your friend just dropped you because one day you got sick and you couldn't go hang out with them you know what kind of friendship is that what kind of support network is that and so we think the the flexibility actually deepens and enhances the, that, that real, real focus on having, you know, real relationships with people. So you're essentially coming alongside the parents and saying, we're part of the village and yeah. sort of helping them get more people in that village and more resources in there and saying, you know, you can do this and we're going to walk alongside you. Yeah. And One of the things that we truly believe at Lyft is Um, Parents are the experts in their own lives. They are the CEOs of their families, and they know what is best for their kids and putting that voice to them and having um, them drive their coaching sessions and set their goals um, because they have big dreams for them and their kids, and we just want to be part of that community of support for the parents and not telling them what they have to do, but believing in them and believing in their goals and adding that extra level of encouragement and some tools and resources to take steps towards that. I want to talk for a minute about this difficulty that we can have sometimes in the city of how we help people help themselves and how to best sort of partner with people because 
you know, it's unfortunate that you can go outside and you don't have to walk very far before you see an under-resourced person, someone who may or may not be living on the street who is asking for help. And people never, I, I feel like a lot of times people don't know what to do because they want to help, I think. But then, you know, we feel like, is that the best use of our money, of our resources? And so I think oftentimes we don't because we don't really know the impact that that is making. So can you speak to people who are just saying, I don't know what to do about everything that I see around me? And I know that's a big question, but um, because you focus so much on relationships, but in times like that, it's like you can't build too much of a relationship in those moments. So what's, what, what can we do that maybe will help a little more? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the big picture, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to, to help you know, organizations, we're a great organization. We do great work, impactful work. There are a lot of great organizations in the city and they all need multiple layers of support. You know, I think from our perspective, you know, we have opportunities to to volunteer, to, you know, do a workshop with our parents around an area of expertise that you might have. You know, our parents are looking for support around money management, around, you know, even some of the some of the struggles of balancing home and work and things like that. And, um, but, but also around, you know, how to, how to grow in your career and how to make it kind of put it all together as you start to move forward economically. And people who have experience doing that, working in different fields or doing different types of things can lend that expertise to a group of our parents and they find it incredibly valuable. Um, so finding ways like that to jump in with an organization that's doing good work is, is always something that you can do. You know, it does require some time and it does require, you know, um, maybe hours that, you know, giving up of hours that might otherwise be free time or dedicated to other things. But I think the return on that is tremendous. And the opportunity to build relationships with people who really need help is great. You know, organizations also, just from a very practical perspective, need board members and, and donors and things like that just to, to keep things moving. You know, we're in an era where, you know, really, regardless of, of who's, you know, in the, the governor's seat or in the president's seat where, you know, there's just a lot more um, of the burden of raising money to, to make your organization work is actually placed on the shoulders of organizations. There's less government funding, there's, you know, and things like that. And, and you know, philanthropy is kind of, can ebb and flow in a real way. Like people don't, you know, we don't know, there's not always the same kind of like, level of donations going out to organizations every year. Um, and organizations need expertise as well. They, you know, we need board members who know about finance, who know about HR, who know about, you know, who even are connected to people who could help the organization grow and can bring in their connections and also dollars, right? Like, that's a real way to help. If you know an organization is doing good work and you know that your dollar can yield $5 or $10 for a family that really needs it, like, you know, you would take that that kind of ROI with any investment that you could have. And, you know, we're talking about like societal impact, right? We're talking about, and from our perspective, we're talking about like saving lives, right? I mean, and we're not a, you know, an anti-violence organization, but the families that we work with, the neighborhoods where we work, we're in kind of the, the south side of the city, kind of working from Bronzeville as far south as Inglewood. And there are real, real pressures and real, real concerns for our families around just keeping their children safe keeping them protected. And if you can support an organization that's trying to help families stabilize and have an opportunity to escape that cycle of poverty and that cycle of, of death in a lot of cases, you know, that's a worthwhile endeavor. You know, that's a worthwhile thing to do. And so 
combining your time with your financial support is a real, real way to jump in. And I'll also say, you know, if it means something to you to give a dollar to someone on the street who needs it, give the dollar, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's a real thing too. Sometimes people need to, you know, just need to eat or, or need, you know, that little bit of support or kindness in that moment. And I think that that goes a really long way for people too. And I know it can be hard because you're, you know, stand on your train platform and you get asked four or five times and then you walk to your office and you get asked another four or five times and it can feel like, like, wow, this problem is really big. But if you're, you know, if you feel moved to do that, that's not a, that's never dumping money into emptiness. That's helping a human soul that needs it. And I think that's a valuable thing as well. Yeah. I think that's really good just saying, you know, even if you're giving a dollar to someone, it's not just putting it into emptiness, but it is investing it in something. And yeah. Even if it's just in a feeling of, right. you know, being recognized, being known, being showing hope, I think that's really good. Um, I'm interested to hear about the parents' perspective on all this, because if we kind of flip it around and say, we know, we understand a little more about what you do and how you partner with them and, and the resources that you can provide, can you kind of flip it around and say, what do the parents feel, how do the parents feel about the services and, and what you provide for them and what do they provide for you? Because I'm sure that, that you guys learn and um, have a relationship with them as well. Mm-hmm. I would say um, parents really enjoy working with Lyft because we enjoy working with the parents. When, Like I described, we'll have family engagement events, and you can just feel the connection and the love that parents have with their coaches and they have with the organization and that they're building with each other as well. And one of the things that I love about Lyft and why I have stayed with the organization for so long is because we truly value the parents' voice and asking for their opinion um, in our program through um, feedback surveys that they get regularly. Um, we ask them for focus groups so we can hear what is their experience firsthand, what is working for them, and what do we need to change to make sure that we are providing um, top-notch services to them, but also a high level of um, customer service, right? And so we want every single parent that we work with to be treated with dignity and respect. We want them to feel like they are walking into the best and brightest place and treated like they um, should be, which is like a human being, right? That is of value. And I think our parents, actually, I know our parents would tell you this, both from hearing it from them, but also in some of the data that we collect on their relationship with Lyft, that they truly be, feel valued by Lyft. They feel like Lyft is supporting them, help them reach their goals. And um, they also send us their friends and family members, which I think is a huge stamp of approval that they go out into their community and tell people about our services and send them to us. Um, we have a parent that um, was one of the first parents that we interacted with in this coaching program. And um, during our first year of rolling out um, our coaching program, she would slide me phone numbers. And I'd have to look at her and be like, did you tell this person I was calling them? Like, So she would just secretly collect names and phone numbers and give them to me so we could reach out to them and connect them and provide the level of support to that family that we provided to her and her family. Mm -hmm. You know, in the private sector, that's like the magic 
kind of question for anybody, any any marketing professional, right, is would you recommend this product to a, a friend or family member? Um, and, you know, we do some evaluation around that, and we have really high rates of return, really high number of people who, who say they would. And do, but, but I think, you know, that old saying, the proof is in the pudding, right? Like, people actually do that. Um, and I think that's a sign, as Sarah said, that, um, you know, that we are really relationship-focused, and, you know, I am, you know, in one sense, the, the leader of the organization here, but so much of that is a, a tribute to Sarah, you know, really who is our the, our the leader of our program. And a lot of those first relationships were relationships that she built. And when you have, you know, I feel very fortunate to be able to work with a great leader like her and, and, and everyone in our organization has to hit the level that she's at, right, and, 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 and does. And so that's a, uh, one of the reasons that we do that so well. And I think that's true across Lyft. We've got you know, great leaders, but here in Chicago, where I, you know, I know and I can speak to, you know, we've got a great person leading our program that spreads that, you know, across the whole organization. And another thing that I, I'd, I'd just like to add quickly around what we, what we get from the parents is, you know, there's, uh, there are a lot of narratives that exist in our society about just the, the like integrity the, the hustle, the stick to of poor families, of low-income families. And, you know, there's a prevailing narrative about, you know, the quote-unquote welfare queen who, you know, collects public aid and public benefits and doesn't want to work and, you know, doesn't want to do the things that she needs to do to move her family forward. And that, um, I'm not going to say the word I want to say, but it, it's just not true. <laughs> um, we see countless mothers and fathers on the south side of Chicago every day who have all the hustle, all the intelligence, all the drive, all the passion for their families that anyone working in one of these beautiful offices in the loop that we can see outside in this great view have, um, but just weren't given the opportunity to, or, or weren't born into an environment that nurtured that. Um, the number one predictor of poverty in America is the zip code that you're born in, which means that if you are born poor, Everything around you is working to trap you in that environment. If you live in a neighborhood where there's no banks, but there's a currency exchange where you, or, a, or a payday loan store where you can pay exorbitant interest on, on you know, credit that, that the rest of us take for granted because we have it in our pocket, that traps you. If you're born in a place where your school doesn't have the resources um, to, to give you the books and the, you know, the, the digital training um, materials and things like that that you need to like read and work at gra grade level and get yourself to, you know, to college and to career, that traps you. There are systems pushing these families in, to keep them in place. Um, and, but these families are fighting against it every single day, actively, earnestly, um, in a way that you wouldn't know if you weren't there. Um, for many people in Chicago, we drive past the South Side, you know, on Lakeshore or on the Kennedy, and we just skirt by. And, and probably in many cases are thankful we don't have to get off on those exits. And, and, you know, I would encourage everyone to, you know, who's been in this city for some time and has never spent any time in Bronzeville or in Englewood to, to get down there and, and meet the people that we see every day. Because I think when you do that, you'd start to understand how many lies are baked into the narratives that we hear about poor families, that we hear about the South Side. Um, there is so much love, you know, the word that Sarah said, so much love and so much power in those neighborhoods. Um, we just need people to help unlock that. You mentioned the fathers. 
<laughs> and if you can talk a bit about the fathers that you see, um, because I think one of the narratives in black families is that maybe there, there are a lot of missing fathers, and maybe there are, but um, I know that you, I'm sure, come across a lot of fathers who are just working as hard as they can to provide and even like deep into the families kind of do that work. And so can you speak a little bit about the fathers that you interact with? Yeah, I'll, I'll let Sarah talk about um, the specific, as it, you know, how it specifically relates to our program and the fathers that we see. We're, we'll talk a little bit later about our upcoming event, Uplifting Chicago on April 18th, uh, Venue West. Uh, but 7 p.m. I got to get all the <laughs> We're honoring, you know, a family where both parents work work with us and are building their career goals together to build a better future for their family. Um, but it's really interesting. There is a strong narrative around, particularly around black fathers, about, you know, just not being present. Um, the CDC actually re- released a study within the last couple of years, though, that showed that black fathers are actually the most engaged fathers in the country, regardless of the marital status of the parents, that Black fathers are more likely to have eaten a meal with their children in the last week, have, are more likely to have engaged with their school. Um, you know, it might look a little different if you're not married to, you know, your child's mother. It might look a little different around how you engage, but black fathers are actually the most engaged fathers in the U.S. Um, and so that's another thing that, you know, that, and, and so whether or not a father is present in our program, you know, we can see the engagement of the fathers anecdotally because while we, we focus on the parent that comes to us, we, we see our work is wrapping around the whole family. Um, now, we do want to, as I said, I'll let Sarah talk a little more of this. We want to do more work to engage fathers directly in our program, but black fathers are there, um, and I think that's something that needs to be shouted from the rooftops as well. <laughs> yeah, um, and I'd say the fathers that we work with, like Saul said, are highly engaged in their children's lives and their children's school. Many of them have served on their children's like local school council or the policy council at a Head Start program. They're actively engaged um, as leaders in the school um, and want the same thing as the mothers in our program want, which is the best life for their children. Um, and we work um, some of the fathers in our program are single fathers as well, too, and I don't think that narrative is shared as much. I think there's always often the narrative of a single mom, which, as Saul pointed out, like the family dynamics might look a little bit different. They might not have like a two-person household, but the father is uh, really engaged. Um, but we don't talk about the father that is the primary caretaker of the children um, and how that impacts um the life and like some of the stereotypes that come into play too that look different than if it was a single household with a mother. Tell me about your favorite program or activity that Lyft does that you just enjoyed over time. It's your your favorite thing that they do? Yeah, I have I have two favorites. One is uh, like I said, I've talked about it a lot, but our family engagement events. One of the things. Um, we heard from our parents quite often is they wanted opportunities to connect with other parents and other families, and they wanted to have um, fun, safe activities to do for their kids um, and bring them together. So whether it's a back-to-school bash where we're playing games and having a meal together or a holiday event where they're handing out self-care kits to our parents and decorating cookies and ornaments with um, the children, it's just a time where families can gather and have family experiences and memories um, that are really important to fi- family dynamics. Uh, 
The other favorite thing of mine is if you are in our coaching program, you are eligible for what we call a family goal fund. And it's something unique um, to Lyft. Not a lot of nonprofits do cash transfer work. So it is our cash transfer program. So we um, invest direct capital into families. And so um, after three months of participation and working on your goals, um, you receive a small stipend and um, parents use that that for either um, basic needs or sometimes to move their goals ahead, whether it's adding more to their savings, decreasing their debt, or paying for a book for school. Because I'm the program director, I get to see every single reason why a parent is using it and I get to like cross-reference it with their goal plan so I can see how they're using the money to invest um, in their families, in their future. And it's just really powerful because I see that direct investment um, come to life. When we started building this program, I mean, we had people ask us directly, well, what if what if people use the money to buy drugs or what if they use the money to buy, buy something else? And you know, all we could kind of say was, you know, there's not, a, as Sarah mentioned, there's not a lot of this work that goes on in the U.S. It's actually much more prevalent in the um, international development space where you provide direct money, not as a loan, but just, it's just slack, right? It's just a little bit of money to help you get by. Um, and all the evidence from the international development space showed that parents, and particularly mothers, universally use the mother, use the money, excuse me, for their children and for their family. And we have so much evidence now to back that up, right? When someone asks us that now, we just say, well, they don't. They use it for groceries. They use it for, for books. They use it for you know, a computer to go back to class or for uh, something for their children. And sometimes they might even use it for, for Christmas gifts, but guess what? That is cool. Like We want kids <laughs> to have Christmas gifts, yeah, right? Like, so, you know, um, but it never goes for anything nefarious. It never goes for anything untoward. It goes for like, parents wanting their kids to have just a little bit more stability in their life, um, you know, and, and, and in the long term, a lot more stability. And we've just, we have, yeah, we've just seen it over and over again. And it's really validating because people looked at us a little funny when we wanted to start this. And, and now we, you know, we've got, got some years of doing it where we can say like, you know, everybody should be doing this. Everybody should be trying to help families have a little bit more until they get there. Right. Like, this is not, and it's not earth shattering money, um, but it's enough to just like maybe not have to choose between your light bill and, or your electric bill and your gas bill one month, right? It's that kind of money and it's a big deal for families. And so we've been, um, we've, we've been glad to be able to do, do that kind of stuff. I saw that you really take a holistic approach to helping the parents, to partnering with the parents and encouraging your coaches to do that. That has to be much more difficult than saying, we're just going to focus on this one thing. We're going to do this one thing and make sure we do that really well and just provide this one service. Why is it important for you guys to be holistic and to kind of take that approach to what you do and how you partner with these parents? Yeah, I think it's because we see the impact once you take that holistic model. So we're, our program's based on three pillars. The first one is financial strength. And so part of that is career and education and how to help parents find um, jobs in a career that will help them make a livable or higher than livable wage, um, along with the financial literacy tools and the financial empowerment and the cash transfer program that we just talked about. 
The second component is personal well-being, and so parents' sense of self-confidence, their stress levels, their sense of hope. Um, and the third one being social connection, social capital. Um, we all could probably point to someone in um, our lives that helped us during some shaky ground moments and when things got a little rough and we needed um, some support, whether it was a bad day, a bad week, or a bad year. And we want to be able to provide that social connection for parents as well. And those three things working together is where you see the most impact. So it's one thing to have cash in your pocket or in your bank account it's even more powerful to have the sense of confidence of getting there and that support around you to make sure that as you're taking these steps forward, you continue to take steps forwards when some things might get a little rough, right? Like, unfortunately, no one in here won the Powerball last <laughs> night, right? And so um, oftentimes, um, parents might get a higher paying job, um, but it could mean sacrifices somewhere else and figuring out expenses for childcare and things like that. So just because someone breaks the poverty line, right, income-wise, doesn't mean that the uphill battle is over. We know parents are, are just people in general are likely to fall back into it without having um, that sense of confidence and social support to keep moving forward. Three big basketball fans around around the table here, and we were talking about it just before we really got into the, the meat of this conversation, but you know, how many times do you see a professional athlete or a college athlete who hurts their left ankle and then comes back a little early on it, and then all of a sudden their right knee starts hurting because all of a sudden, because they were overcompensating on their right leg, right? That to me is the value of being holistic, right? Like if you can get this whole thing healthy, um, then you've just got a much stronger base to stand on. Whereas if you leave something maybe only partially treated, then there's it may not break down in the same way, but something else is bound to break down. Um, and I think that that you know works across all of our all of our existence, right? If you think about when you you know even if your job and everything is going great, but something's off in your personal relationships or um, you know, maybe you're not making enough money, but you've, you know, but the personal relationships are fine, or you feel like I don't have anyone who has my back, but other things might be working. You still don't feel whole, right? Like you, you still don't feel like you've got it all on the ball. Like we want to, as human beings are, I think our nature is to want to cover these things and to be connected to other people and to feel well in, inside ourselves. And all that stuff just makes the job a lot easier. It makes finding work a lot easier. It makes holding down a job a lot easier. Um, and, and, and it, you know, it all has to work together to push people forward. And as Sarah said before, like if we think back in our own lives, when we make the leaps in our career, um, it's because all those things are working together, your personal, your social, um, and, and then the job piece kind of, kind of all working together and moving forward together is when you're, when you really hit the sweet spot. So tell me about the future of Lyft. Where, where do we go from here? <laughs> so the future of Lyft is um, is to help the whole city of Chicago and and to to spread what we know and believe that we're doing right all across the country. Um, you know, we want to serve um, about fifteen thousand families across the country in our Lyft offices, but we want to touch you know hundreds of thousands of lives across that same period of time by 
sharing the work that we do with other organizations, sharing it with other partners, helping people to understand the importance of a holistic approach, understand the importance of helping parents and children together, um, and understand the importance of treating people with dignity and respect. Um, and we know we have, a, you know, there are a lot of partners who do those things, but putting it all together in the right way is, is really important. Um, and we believe that we can change the way that, that we fight poverty in this country. We can, we can break the cycle. You know, that is our mission, is to empower families to break the cycle of poverty, as Sarah said earlier. But our mission is to, you know, in, in a grander sense, is to not just do that in the cities where we work, but to break that cycle for every family in America and to make it so there are supports in every community um, to help families to, to get out of that trap um, in the long run. That's, that's where the future of Lyft, you know, is for me and I, and I believe for our organization is, is being a real leader in the space and helping to show you know, the good things that we're learning, the good things that we see in our families and, 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 and spread that as far as we possibly can. I'm sure we'd have, we have listeners that would love to join you in that mission and just start saying, what, what can I do? How can I help? And so how can we partner with Lyft Chicago in working that mission? Yeah, so uh, the, the best thing to do to just learn a little bit more about us is go to whywelift, L-I-F-T, again, .org. Um, and if you go to whywelift.org slash Chicago, you can actually see a link to our upcoming event, Uplifting Chicago, as I said before, uh, happening on April 18th at 7 p.m. at Venue West, which is 221 North Polina. Um, we are celebrating the strength of our families. We're celebrating the inherent strength of all families in Chicago and, and lifting the voices of you know, some of our supporters, but also some of the, the families that we serve to show um, you know, how all parents want the same things for their children. And you know, it's, it's our duty and our responsibility as a city and as a community to provide the support for every family to do that. So we hope that you will join us on April 18th at 7 p.m. Again, go to Why We Lift. W-H-Y-W-E-L-I-F-T dot O-R-G slash Chicago. Um, you can find out information about the event. There will be a link there that says join us up at Uplifting Chicago. But whywelift.org, again, is just a great place to see the work we're doing all across the country. Find out how you can get involved, not only in Chicago, but in L.A., uh, New York, or D.C., um, and, 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 and find out how to connect with, our, with all of our team to, to, find, to help us kind of spread this work across the country. Saul, Sarah, it's been great having you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, thank you for just teaching us about what parents are really wanting to do everywhere, not just here, downtown, south side, west side, but all over the country. All parents are really trying to do the same thing, give best opportunity for their children to succeed later in life. And so we thank you for your work in that. Thank you for listening today. Again, visit whywelift.org slash Chicago to learn more. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago, as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. 
No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guest's individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.